You're listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, and joining me tonight is Evan Osnos, the author of Age and Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China, which I hasten to add was named as one of three Pulitzer finalists in the category of nonfiction, as well as the 2014 National Book Award. Evan now has one of the most coveted jobs in journalism. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, while also being a fellow at the Brookings Institution. Congratulations, and thanks for being here. Thanks very much. A constant theme in your book is the transformation or perhaps evolution of China from a monolithic society to one of ambitious individuals and the pressure that this is placing on the central government. Is this a pressure cooker that will eventually boil over? What we know is that the forces are growing, and they're growing in very visible ways. And we don't always, we don't always see it, I think, in the West. But in China today, there are on any given day, 500 acts of civil unrest somewhere in the country, 180,000 per year. That's the Chinese government's figure. And what that means is that there is this steadily accumulating sense of grievance or injustice. And this is, let remind ourselves, this is at a period where there has been enormous economic growth. So you've had on the one hand this period where people feel that their lives are getting better economically, but as that happens, they become aware in some sense of the political things that they want, and that produces the, the sense of tension. Now, you write, and I have to say often humorously, of, of how the state censors block and advise journalists on what to write. But there's a, a dark side that appears to be even stronger under the country's current leadership, a, a real change now. Is the Communist Party risking more than it hopes to gain by continuing to suppress dissent in such an overt and, I might even say, calculated manner? Mm, I mean, that's, that is the question. They, in a sense, what they're trying to do is to shore up the institution that has served them by their reckoning quite well since 1949, the Communist Party. But it is, after all, the last major Leninist party in the world today, if you don't include North Korea, for instance, or, mm -hmm. or Cuba, which is in a state of transformation. And so what they're trying to do is defend a system and buttress a system that may or may not be obsolete in 2015. And part of the way that they're doing that is by trying to limit the realm of ideas, by saying we're going to prevent subversive ideas from abroad, from not only getting into the newspaper, obviously, but really getting onto the Internet. Uh, we're going to prevent Western textbooks from circulating on Chinese campuses. This has been the latest initiative. And a lot of us who care about China and have spent a lot of time living there ask how it is that a country is going to be as dynamic and innovative as it needs to be to survive. And ultimately, that's what's going to be the Communist Party's source of survival, is, a, mm -hmm. is a, a, a dynamic economy, if it closes itself off to some of the boldest, most disruptive, most exciting ideas of our time. Now, you actually got texts or emails saying what you could say or not say. Tell us about some of those. Yeah, this was a happy discovery as a writer. Um, we're always looking for things, artifacts, that tell us the story of this, of this period. And what happened was the Chinese government produces a constant stream of advice. Really, these are orders that go out to editors and writers across the country. Now, when you say Chinese government, who, who is that? So specifically, it would be the Central Propaganda Department, which is the overarching uh, Ministry of Truth, as we would think of it, uh, inside the Communist Party. But then there are all these other agencies that also have that kind of power. So, for instance, the regulators that govern the Internet, they have the ability to send out orders to website administrators saying, for instance, don't post anything today about floods in the western part of the country because we don't want to focus on the fact that our infrastructure is not holding up. Or they'll say, don't publicize the fact that there was a corruption case in the big cities. Um, 
And what happened, it used to be that these kinds of orders were secret, but we're living in the age of the internet and nothing is secret. And so steadily these began to leak out. And as they leaked out, people online started to figure out how to organize them and they would send them directly to your phone. And so I started getting text messages that would keep me up to date on what the latest censorship orders were. And in a way they were almost like a phantom narrative, a kind of second a second story of the official version of what was going on in China. So you could see what was going on in the newspapers. That's what the party, how the party explained its, its reality. And then there was this second narrative going on. And I tended to go back and forth reading one and then the other and comparing the distance between the two. Well, it made a great read. It really did. You did something else, too, that was quite unique. You, you joined a group of Chinese tourists on their first trip to Europe. What observations did they have that really told you how the West is perceived? Yeah, I learned a lot uh, from that trip. You were the only Westerner. I was the only Westerner, and uh, <laughs> then there were 39 Chinese tourists, and with the exception of one or two, this was everybody's first trip out of Asia, and so it was a chance to see the West through fresh eyes, through their eyes. And a couple of things became very clear. One of the things that, uh, well, I should tell you at the beginning that we covered five countries in 10 days, so we were moving fast. And I can tell you it's also possible to spend 10 days in Europe and eat only Chinese food. And in a sense, I could sympathize with the impulse because, you know, it wasn't all that long ago that Americans were going to Europe and ordering hamburgers. hamburgers. Exactly. And that's the moment that China finds itself in now where it's sort of tiptoeing out into the world. And they're, in some ways they're very curious about what they're finding. Um, they're impressed by things like Western universities and our educational resources. They're less impressed by things like graffiti in downtown Milan. And seeing what they gravitated towards showed me the West, actually, in a new light. Let's turn to the military, because nearly every day we hear that China is, is becoming much more aggressive and projecting its military force, especially in the South China Sea, and really trying now to have a, a true naval presence why the change, and what do you think are the short-term and long-term implications for, for these actions? This is a serious issue, and I think this is, of all the issues that we face in the relationship between U.S. and China, figuring out how much control China will have over its own neighborhood and how much the United States is prepared for that change, I think is, uh, looms large. What's happening is both a short-term and a long-term uh, cause. The, the long-term reason is China today has finally said we are returning to the place that we inhabited for most of our history, which was that we were the dominant power in Asia by any measure. And for most of the last 150 years, really, uh, China has not been an uncontested power in Asia. Certainly, the United States today is responsible for security in that region. We police the global sea lanes, which make international trade possible. But China now says, for the first time since 1949, certainly, and, and uh, really for the first time in over a century, we expect to have control over this region. We, we're not saying when, we're not saying how, and we're not saying we're going to push you out overnight, but you need to acclimate to that fact. Which is somewhat understandable. It is understandable, and it's inevitable. But the question is how and when and on what terms. And what the United States is saying is, we're not seeking to prevent you from building a security environment that you need to feel comfortable. We did it in our own hemisphere uh, in the 19th century. But you need to do it in a way that is respectful of international norms and respectful of international law. 
but at the moment, I'm afraid China and the United States are talking past each other on this issue. And I was I'm struck by it all the time. In so many ways, we're you know we're, we've never had more trade between us. We've never had more students going back and forth. And yet on this issue, we have yet to figure out a shared vocabulary. And that's something that strikes me is that it seems that we're really at this delicate balance right now. With very little provocation, the relationship could go one way or the other. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I people have described it recently. David Lampton, in particular, who's a great China hand in Washington, where I live, says that we're at a tipping point. We're at a moment where we need to decide, as two great powers in the world today, how are we going to go about this? And what he really means is that, as Americans, there are we probably need to accept the fact that there are now institutions in the world that need to have a greater Chinese voice. For instance, the IMF, the World Bank. Uh, it's just natural that now that China has an economy that is, by some measures, larger than ours in the United States, we need to get used to that fact. But he's also saying to China, don't expect that if you're going to try to reform the security environment in, in, the, uh, in the Pacific, that the United States is going to do that casually. It's not. And we need to go into this carefully. Well, when you're talking about playing a, a bigger role in the, in the world, you know, international organizations. I feel a little odd asking you about corruption when we're hearing what happened with FIFA today. Mm. But corruption <laughs> plays a big role in Chinese society. And it how does. does that affect all of this? Corruption was one of the most remarkable things I watched over the course of the last decade living in Beijing. All of us who were living there, Chinese and American, had this inescapable sense that the corruption was growing exponentially. You know, there's always been corruption in the United States, in China. Um, but the, the, the sheer accumulation of money was so fast, everything was changing so fast in China, that money was being siphoned off constantly into people's pockets. And as a result, it became an irritant, a kind of open wound on the legitimacy of the Communist Party. And they realized if they don't do something about it, it would be, as the president put it, the Chinese president, it would be a cancer that would eat at the life of the party. So what you've got today is the Chinese government in the last two years has gone after corruption in a serious way, and it is serious. Uh, I mean, they've They've arrested tens of thousands of people. But it is not rule of law. It is a surgical procedure to go in and remove people. But it has not introduced transparency, accountability into the system. And that's ultimately what they need for the long term if they're going to try to get rid of corruption. That's a very interesting nuance that you bring up. And you go into that in considerable detail about the train disaster, the milk, and several other companies that have had problems. You've been listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, and we've been talking with Evan Osmos, the author of Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in New China. Again, let me remind you, it was a 2014 Pulitzer finalist. I've read the book. It's great. I really recommend it. And for information about council programs throughout the United States, please go to worldaffairscouncils.org.